Right. So this is the third in our series on the science of training theory. The first one was very much a survey. We went through a lot of functional anatomy, explaining all the variables that go into any kind of straining, training stimulus progress. Uh, then I wanted to, I, I'm not going to go through an entire research review on every element we can, because I think there are some central tenets that, that encompass other ones. They, they, they flow well in groups. So last week we did one on frequency and you can't talk about frequency without duration and intensity, effort level, that sort of thing. Cause those are very continuum oriented. Uh, but one that stands out a little bit on its own. Uh, is load, how heavy should you train? And what I would group in in this topic is is actually how you train. Um, you know, the entire um, aesthetic of what you're you're going for. For example, uh, I have clients that train in my facility here from high school athletes to 60 year old, you know, people just trying to to live their best lives. And so it can be very, very different. We just had an advanced training camp with powerlifters and bodybuilders. So it, it really does depend on what your goals are, but there are still some elements that I think everybody can know, especially what the current research is and how that fits in the, the continuum of history. So let's dive right into training load, which I'm just going to loosely define as how much weight you're lifting, You know how much weight is on the bar. And in research, you can measure that by a couple things. Uh, number one, by effort level, like we're going to talk today about volitional failure. That was one of the key elements of this particular meta-analysis. But there are other ways to do it, uh, such as just total load and so forth. You can measure it very biomechanically by force production um, through different modalities in a, in a training lab and so forth. Uh, this is not quite that sophisticated, which I think gives us better application for what we might be interested in. So all of that said, if if you're jumping in on this one and you have not heard those previous two, I think you would you would really enjoy those first two as well. But this is a current meta-analysis 2021 resistance training load effects on muscle hypertrophy and strength, uh, systematic review and network meta-analysis. There were a couple that I was looking at for today, and what made me want to dig into this one first is this name down here, Dr. Bill Kramer, who I have referenced throughout this particular series. He was one of what I think is just the, the key pioneers in exercise science. He went to college in the 70s, um, had a choice to make between he was a very academic minded person, so he almost went to Harvard to study law and that kind of thing decided because he was a football player and had enjoyed strength training and had scholarships to go to D1 schools and so forth. Like, let's go study lifting weights. That sounds like a great thing for an 18-year-old. So he has brought that kind of academic rigor by creating the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He has he has more than 350 different published papers himself. He has written seminal textbooks one of the greatest periodization, nonlinear, non-athletic periodization textbooks ever in 1987, which I still think is a, is a gold standard. Uh, he has taught at uh, Penn State University, Ohio State University, Ball State University. Uh, I think right now he's at University of Connecticut at about 70 years old. So when you see his name on something like this, you know it's probably going to have some useful information. 
obviously, uh, at his stage of his career, you're going to have graduate students and other people contributing. He's not, you know, deep in the lab, probably getting his hands on too many things personally. But just just knowing that he's part of this study at least gives me uh, a reason to look at it. So when I dove in, what I liked was that, as you could see by that title, they're comparing both strength and hypertrophy. And as you'll see here a little bit in the methodology, they they were pretty um, tight in their inclusion criteria. So what they were actually going to look at. So let me... Uh, read this real quick with you that this study aimed to analyze the effect of resistance training performed until volitional failure with low, moderate, and high loads on both muscle hypertrophy and muscle strength in healthy adults and to assess the possible participant design and training related covariance that may affect the adaptations. One of the things you guys know I like to do is just where I can organically point out some things about how research is conducted uh, most of the time we're dealing with nutrition designs. Uh, this is very fun for me on the training side. But as we go through some of these points of the methodology, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some things that we've talked about that could um, color the results a little bit, uh, either intentionally or non-intentionally. But first of all, let me, let me continue with some of their introductory remarks. In the 1940s, DeLorme and Watkins proposed un undertaking resistance exercise sets until neuromuscular vol volitional failure to maximize such benefits. Although a vast body of research work in this area has been published, issues regarding how to optimize resistance training outcomes remain. Furthermore, controversies regarding how volitional failure is operationalized call into question the implementation of this technique in populations other than strength athletes as participants' motivation and tolerance discomfort, neuromuscular fatigue affect performance and results related to this training program. So even all the way back in the 1940s, it was being, and if you think about the kind of 1900s to 1920s, uh, that was almost the carnival-esque beginning of weight training. Uh, of course, 2,000 years, 3,000 years before that in, in Greece, uh, doing different things, but very, very formally, you know, fashioning dumbbells and so forth, barbells. It was it was beginning to be a thing. So by the '40s, they were studying some some variant possibilities. And I got how could we utilize this for something good? So taking sets to failure was first looked at in the 1940s, and and what that might entail, what it does for us, pros and cons. Um. Load selection has been considered an important resistance training variable to successfully increase muscle size and strength across different populations. Considering Henneman's size principle, which are motor units recruited from smallest to largest. I'll explain that. You guys got a little of this in our survey two weeks ago. Uh, studies have advocated in favor of either high loads or both low and high loads to achieve maximal or near maximal recruitments of motor units during fatiguing contractions to induce muscle hypertrophy. Let me back up into that just a little bit more. So just picking apart some of these important nouns, um, motor units, if you guys remember, I had all those slides with sarcomeres and Z-lines and actin-myosin filaments, and we talked about how a, a single nerve like the musculocutaneous nerve that would innervate the biceps branches off into different you know, smaller nerves that then control motor units, bundles of muscle fibers that recruit in that all or none mechanism. So kind of like nerve signals, nerves 
transmitted afferently to the brain. Uh, the, the size of the nerve can affect the velocity. Uh, very similarly, the brain recruits muscular motor units from smallest to largest. So almost in a way to calibrate what it needs. Um, we haven't used language like this, but Golgi tendon organs, muscle spindles, these are fibers that connect the central nervous system to the muscle so that the brain knows where the muscle is in space, how stretched or contracted it is, how much load is there. So I know when I go to pick up my phone, I'm, I'm not reaching for a hundred pound stone, you know, my, my fingertips and then my, my hand and then my biceps, every, every muscle that go into that action, the brain is, you know, tearing T A R E, you know, that weight. So it knows how many motor units to recruit and, and what kind of synergistic movement pattern, all that kind of stuff. So that is a part of why we would select a certain load. If I have a goal of strength or a goal of hypertrophy or a goal of non-muscle intent, but more movement intent, then the amount of weight I use will dictate the type of motor unit recruitment, the rep ranges I can therefore use. So if I can do something for 100 reps or only five reps before I fail, you know we're facilitating use of different muscle fiber types, fast twitch, slow twitch, intermediate. And as we go through that fatiguing process of rep after rep, depending on how we're recruiting those, those motor units, you're going to be tapping into different energy systems, anaerobic, glycolytic, aerobic, all that stuff. Again, we covered in that big survey two weeks ago. Uh, so all of that matters. But for this particular study on load, we're looking at what happens. You know, if, if I'm going to bench press 400 pounds for two reps, or 200 pounds for 20 reps, where am I going to get the best rep range based on load to get to my goals? And again, they bifurcated this study into looking at strength and hypertrophy, but specifically looking at, did they normalize for that kind of effort level? So I'll get there in a second. Once I get to methodology, this will make a little more sense. I know this is a little bit long on the introductory stuff. Um, but for example, Mitchell et al. and Lem et al. have reported that 10 weeks of resistance training until volitional failure in untrained men at low and high loads, so a low load being 30% of, of max weight and 80% of a one rep max, resulted in similar increases in quadricep uh, muscle volume uh, and muscle fiber cross-sectional area of the vastus lateralis. So consider that real quick. Using both high and low load gave almost identical um, muscle growth, so hypertrophy. So that would indicate maybe we have a choice. I can use more reps in a little bit lighter weight, or, or I'm sorry, lower reps in higher weights, or vice versa. And maybe based on that mechanism, I get the same type of hypertrophy. So I would kind of have a choice. So that's one finding. But again, this is a meta-analysis that's going to look at a lot of different studies. Uh, these findings indicate that muscle hypertrophy may be more responsive in untrained individuals, which is going to come into really big play with this meta-analysis uh, of the large window for adaptation, masking differential effects of training modalities and dosages. So that was kind of a criticism of that particular study. They used untrained people. So virtually anything they did was going to create some kind of a really good accentuated training response. 
Um, in contrast, Schoenfeld, who I think, you know, is a little more sophisticated. You guys know I talk about Brad quite a bit. He's a contemporary of ours. Uh, Schoenfeld and colleagues reported that eight weeks of resistance training at high loads, two to four rep max, induced greater strength gains in recreationally trained men compared with moderate loads, whereas increases in elbow extensor and quadricep femoris muscle thickness were higher for the moderate load group. So there are different ways you can construct studies to specifically account for some of these variables. And I'm going to get to showing you guys what they did here. Their criteria, they wanted to include only studies that perform sets to volitional failure, meaning that, you know, I'm a subject in the study and I'm picking a weight and they would say, you know, pick a weight that you can do 10 reps and then you're going to fail. So I would for like dumbbell bench press, maybe get 75 pound dumbbells and I get to nine reps, 10, 10 reps. And, you know, I really, really try and I just, I can't get that last rep and I fail. That's volitional failure. Uh, the, the effects of low rep maximum and moderate and high load as defined by this. If you can get greater than 15 reps of that, that, that maximum weight, of your maximum weight, that would be considered low load. Moderate load would be in that 9 to 15 rep range. And then high load would be anything under 8, which is a pretty big range for people that I know that would be training seriously. Uh, because a lot of us would be talking about one, two, three rep maxes, maybe even a five rep max. Then you get up to eight reps and you start thinking, well, that's, that's kind of hypertrophy. You know, that's that's not a strength or power related load. But for the sake of their research and just how they were going to include or discount different studies, that's definitionally what they decided to do. Uh, network meta-analysis was undertaken to calculate the standardized mean difference between resistance training load and overall subgroup, uh, blah, blah, blah. Th this actually was an incredibly detailed uh, quantitative meta-analysis. Uh, I There is a lot that I'm going to leave out the way they calculated things, but you guys can always look that up if you're interested in. I wanted to make sure that we had enough time to cover the more practical stuff. So they looked at almost 6,000 studies. So again, looking at hypertrophy and strength comparative studies where you had to compare low load to medium to high or anywhere. And you're, you're going to see how, how there was some uh, scaling between those variables, which I think gave some interesting uh, information. So out of almost 6,000 studies that they retrieved, uh, they could only pick out just over 2,500 to say, okay, we, we think these may be, you know, in the ballpark. Uh, but then they ended up with only 28. So they really, with a fine-tuned comb, found what they wanted to study to include in this meta-analysis with about 750 subjects. So a couple things on that type of criteria inclusion. One could say, well, that's really fantastic that they were that selective they really knew what they wanted to look at. And so they they parsed it down to those that really tightly met a certain criteria set. But out of 2,600 that were reviewed that they thought were close enough to only come out with 28, another person could argue, you know, hmm, what did they leave out? And, and that's where a, a lot of scientists are um, initially skeptical that, you know, was there some kind of bias in that? So 
Another thing I'm not including in this review, there is an entire section in this meta-analysis where through current software, you can actually survey for bias, different forms of bias in the studies themselves and the meta-analysis. Very, very interesting. It's almost kind of a big data uh, type type technique. Um, but again, I, I, I would attribute that to somewhere, somebody like Bill Kramer, who's going to say, if, if I'm going to be part of a study, we're going to make sure this thing is bulletproof. So um, another way that they insulated themselves, I think, into making sure that they were looking at only information that would have very high relevance. Um, so we're down to 28 studies. And within those 28 studies, as I said, about 750 healthy, oops, typo there, healthy men and women, average age 23 and a half, plus or minus three years. So anywhere from 20 to 26 and a half, pretty young. Um, 17 of these studies compared low versus high load. Remember those rep ranges. Four compared low versus moderate. Five compared moderate versus high. Two compared all three. So an interesting little variance in terms of how they could apply this in at a, at a scale, so to speak, or a continuum. Um, <clears throat> here's where you really have to make sure you know what you're looking at in a study. None of these included highly trained individuals. And a highly trained individual in exercise science research is some there's there's a couple ways you can do this, but there are usually metrics like if you can squat twice your body weight, you're highly trained. If you've been training for this particular length of time, you're highly trained, et cetera. So different metrics you can use, but they either by specific criteria or just how they they shook out the the studies, there were just none that were highly trained, obviously a very young population. So, it really depends on what you want to consider relevant. Uh, as we talked about last week, we know that about two-thirds of all of your gains in terms of hypertrophy, just gross volume muscle mass, pounds added to your frame, happen within weeks of training initiation. About 90 to 95% of all of the muscle weight gain you're ever going to have happens within one year of serious training. So somebody, I mean, I've been training since I was 11 years old, pretty aggressively. And so if I were in the study at an average age of 23, I would have already been training for 12 years. Obviously my best years were, oops, I want to go back there. Um, you know, probably in my mid twenties to, to mid thirties, but young group, still could be, especially because most of these are probably on college campuses, you know, could still have a pretty good training base. Um, 19 of the 28 studies were men only. Oh, I keep going forward before I get there. I'm trying to get rid of this bar at the bottom. Sorry, something's in my way, so I can't see that bottom line. Um, hopefully you guys can see it, but I cannot see what I typed there. Eight to nine, something. Uh, 20, 22 of the 28 studies prescribing training by rep max. So kind of what we described there, um, volitional failure. 15 studies measured hypertrophy in lower extremities, eight in the upper body, five whole body, lower body strength assessed in 20 studies, uh, 12 in the upper. And so 
all of that to show that it really included a lot. They could have pared this down even more saying, well, we just want to make sure we're studying the same thing across the board. So we're just going to look at the squat as a movement, or we're just going to study, you know, the vastus lateralis or the, the pack and the bench press, that kind of thing. I think it's nice that they get a little bit of a full flavor here to look at. And that's what this graphic shows. When you look at low load resistance training versus moderate versus high load in this kind of a graphic, and you see that they had 18 studies here, four there, six there, you can start to differentiate how you can slide these graphs around and, and show where the emphasis was. Now, th this is, this is going to show us most of the detail before we get to some of the discussion and application. But look over here, this first graph on this slide is just looking at muscle hypertrophy. The next slide will show muscle strength. But here are the different types of studies. So high load versus low load, moderate versus low, high versus moderate. And you know the different studies, how, how many of the studies compared those, the actual sample size, how many subjects were involved. Uh, the confidence interval, p-value, all that stuff, just showing that you know there was relevance and that this really does show us something. But when you synthesize all of this down, and I just selected the graphs that would give us some practical information. As I said, anybody who's really deeply into the statistics, feel free to look at the study uh, on your own. But the overall analysis is that we can say with 85% confidence that moderate load resistance training is best for muscle hypertrophy, not low load and not high load. So here's an interesting thing to consider. Again, going back to our survey two weeks ago, we know that fast twitch muscle fiber has a little bit higher propensity for muscle hypertrophy. So meaning higher load and lower rep. But we also know that muscle tissue type, muscle fiber type doesn't exist in a vacuum. You don't have one muscle like your gastroc or your lat that's just one. It's a 40-60, 45-55 kind of split. So if you're interested in hypertrophy in an entire muscle group or muscle singly, then it's, you know, you you want both. You You want to train all throughout the continuum of energy systems as well as muscle fiber types but when you consider what type of training load and rep range hits different uh, you know, mechanisms for that mechanical stress, remember there's metabolic stress and mechanical stress for disruption and creating this change, 85% of your results for hypertrophy are going to come in volitional failure in that moderate load resistance level. 9 to 15 reps. And here's the application point. It is very rare, in my opinion, may, maybe this has changed in kind of open open gym formats, but in my world of training and the people that I communicate with and work with, we work within a certain rep range and there are warm-up sets and then there are work sets. And for somebody to program a training design that says, I want you to do all of your work sets where you go to failure in nine to 15. And you may remember that there's also some very current research showing that in slow twitch muscle fiber, uh, you know, oxygen rich postural muscle, like your legs and your back 20 to 30 reps where you are failing, not just 
not just warming up, not just going to 20 and saying, oh, that was a little painful, got a little lactic acid buildup. But I mean, failure in 20 to 30 reps, that has relevance and impact in a good way. Um, so, But again, those would be on more of the slow twitch and intermediate muscle fiber. So just 85% of your results coming from failing in that rep range, I think should raise some eyebrows in that A, wow, we don't really have to spend that much time going to higher load failure that can save us some risk and some potential injury and wear and tear even on joints and tendons and so forth. Um, and it's really hard. I, I will tell you that my leg training partner who comes in once a week to do legs with me, um, he's an engineer by training. And so he's very meticulous. He's very detailed in what he wants to accomplish. He, he trains like an engineer and whatever he's working on, whether it's a powerlifting type stimulus or hypertrophy or recovery and deloading, I mean, he comes in with a plan. And if he says something like, okay, we're going to do squats or leg press, and and I want to fail at that 10 rep range, then that first work set, you know, he's got a weight that he's predicting he's going to fail there, and we go to failure. And then he will adjust the weight accordingly. If he feels like, okay, you know, again, I want to fail for my second work set and my third work set and my fourth work set, I want to fail at 10. He's selecting that as the variable to, to orbit the whole workout around. And so he may say, okay, that, you know, that kind of warmed me up, woke me up a little bit. I think I can go heavier now on my second work set and still hit 10. And that may happen. And then by maybe the third or fourth, maybe we have to take some weight off. And then it's going to be an AMRAP set. It's not going to be just kind of getting to failure. It's, you know, most of the time, again, depending on how we're training, it's going to be aggressively going there. There are also times that we may be in that higher load, low rep work, you know, especially because he's done some powerlifting. But that's... I don't think a lot of people train that way. A lot of people don't think that I want to intentionally fail consistently with all my work sets in that moderate rep range. So that's something to consider if you've never done it. Uh, it's, it's a little bit humbling because it's it gets pretty painful. It's almost like German volume training, something like that. Uh, I also have always found it somewhat therapeutic if I'm working on some injuries so earlier in my career, if I would start feeling a little tendonitis or a little sore in knees or shoulders or something, I may say, okay, I, I really need to back off. And my way of deloading back then is I may create a self-imposed rule for a couple of weeks where I will not touch a weight that I can't do 10 reps with. And unintentionally, I was kind of forcing myself into here, but it was just to decrease that training load uh, so that you know, those soft tissues, tendons and so forth could recover a little bit. So that's for hypertrophy. So now we have a baseline there. Let's look over at strength. So high versus low, moderate versus low, high versus moderate. Okay, this is an even much, much tighter um, outcome here. 98.2% for high load resistance training uh, is where you're going to get your best results. So if you want to get stronger, this is for muscle strength, not hypertrophy, then train with heavy weights. That should kind of elicit a duh response. Uh, but the interesting thing is I, I often reference going all the way back to the 50s and 60s when Joe Weider was creating his you know, Weider principles. 
And then it took until about the 80s where people were doing real uh, exercise science research and validating some of those things and refining some of those concepts. And it's really funny to me and good to see some of those things um, that we just knew. I don't want to say empirically, but I also don't want to say anecdotally because these are real people spending their entire careers and you don't do what doesn't work uh, very quickly in the training lab of your own body and your own training, you gravitate toward what works for you and you, you quickly push aside things that don't. So if you want strength work, or I should say, if you want strength, do strength work. And a, a quick little anecdote on that. I, I have a 15 year old athlete I'm working with in my facility just, just started two or three months ago we had to go through a lot of just conditioning and biomechanical training and competency work. We're getting a lot of neuromuscular synergy and coordination happening. That alone increases strength and your ability to recruit muscle fiber, uh, both safely and effectively. And just yesterday, we got to a point where I told him, okay, this is the closest thing we've done yet to a true athlete-based protocol. So we we did squats, we did some some upper body pull and push work, um, some hinge stuff, some some stiff legged deadlifts. But what was different was instead of a lot of time spent in warming up and cueing and technique work, which could be labeled as kind of hypertrophy, you know, because you're doing a lot of sets with lower load, moderate load work. We were, you know, warming up well, we were being safe, but we kind of escalated to the strength work. And now the goal, because I think he can physically do this, even though we will have some deload times and some training progressions and regressions. Um, I said, man, every time you come in here now, we're going to be getting stronger. That's the goal. Like the, the foundation is now built. Um, he squatted yesterday 150 pounds. I said, by the end of the summer, you're going to be squatting 225. And we set these goals. And I said, you you have now built the foundation so that we can start doing athlete-based work. Because as a basketball player, he's like a 6'5 swing guard, needs a lot of speed, a lot of quickness. I can't just put unnecessary bulk on him. Hypertrophy work would weigh him down and make him a worse athlete. So there are applications to people who just want pure strength, powerlifting, for example. Um, I think most of us listening to this want a little bit of both because for your best hypertrophy, which we'll see in the next couple of slides, you do need some strength work, but it's not as I just described as an athlete. Um, I included these. I know they're kind of unreadable, but I, I often mention to you guys the difference between looking at a study from 1960 or 1980 versus today. There are just so many better ways to visually represent data. And so every single one of these lines here horizontally shows the outcome that they're studying per study on this left axis. But you you show in kind of a a vertical scatter plot, how they wrap up. And then, so you get a nice little mean and you, you see where that line is. For example, this, this is what represents the sweet spot for training for hypertrophy, high versus moderate versus low load. Then the same thing over here for strength. So again, just if you're into research, really such, such great ways that we can do things now with, with software. 
So this gets a little bit narrative heavy again, but I'll try to only hit the high points and then we can chat about everything. But this is their discussion after a huge, probably 20 or 30 page meta analysis. They had 73 citations of their own uh, that fed into this outside of even those, you know, initial 26,000 or so studies that they considered uh, for application. There are three important findings from our systemic review and network meta-analysis of the dose-response relationship between resistance training load and gains in hypertrophy and strength. First, in untrained and recreationally trained individuals, muscle hypertrophy gains are likely to be similar regardless of resistance training load when performed to volitional trainer over relatively short periods of intervention. Meaning, if you are just getting started, it doesn't matter what you do. You could do push-ups and your chest is going to grow and you're going to get stronger. Um, you know, you're just, you're any resistance stimulus you get is going to create some response. That means that's probably not a great study group for application across different subject groups. Um, I think it was last week we specifically picked a study that looked at highly trained individuals because that has application for most of us. If you've been training for 10 years or 20 years, you don't you, you don't want to apply information that newbies, you know, were were studied for. Uh, but in line with the physiological adaptation principle, adaptation principle of diminishing returns, untrained participants exhibit greater muscle hypertrophy compared with those, blah, 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 what I just said. Furthermore, undertaking more resistance training sessions provided superior muscle size. So that gets into just finishing that first point. We talked about this so much last week when we discussed frequency. If you aren't doing much disruptive, mechanical, or metabolic work, then you can train more often. For example, as I'm putting my shoulder back together from tearing two tendons uh, five and a half weeks ago, um, I, I could I could do some range of motion and some isometrics virtually every day. I was quote training my shoulder and working the pec and so forth, um, but I wasn't doing that much disruption. It was very rehabilitative. Then I got up to a point where you know I could do some things that didn't affect that tissue. So I could do you know extensor type stuff. I could do some arm work and protecting the shoulder, and I was getting that resistance back up. But then all of a sudden, I couldn't train quite as often because the muscle tissue had that disruptive response. Well, now I'm up to, as of today, a whopping 20-pound dumbbell bench press on my right side. So I have a 60-pound dumbbell on my left hand and a 20 in my right, and I'm bench pressing. And because I did this exercise two days ago, it had only, you know, had gone up to 15 pounds. And I thought, okay, I've had 48 hours to recover. I'm I'm not going to maximum work. I'm not doing a 300 pound bench press. I can probably you know do a little bit um, you know more frequency. But on my last set, I was getting kind of sore, and I could really feel where the the muscle had torn away from the pec tendon. So I thought, all right, that's that's my limit today, baby. That's that's it. 20 pounds. You know, all of a sudden, I could just feel you know that I was increasing risk. Again, if you're a new person, this is their first point in this meta-analysis, new to training, you're going to train a little more often. You're going to probably not use loads that are unsafe and so forth. So you can have higher frequency. Any kind of training load is going to help. But getting into the second and third points that, that I think um, apply to us a little bit more, 
Effects on muscle strength are load dependent with higher loads resulting in greater gains over relatively short interventions reviewed, um, which again, I know that doesn't sound significant, but we'll, we'll talk about how it can be in just a minute. Finally, the results for muscle hypertrophy and strength were maintained even when the higher quality studies were considered, that is studies with less risk of bias. They counted for that, as I mentioned, that was very impressive. Therefore, although improvements in muscle hypertrophy seem to be load dependent for untrained and recreationally trained individuals, muscle strength increases are superior with high load resistance uh, and short duration. Um, let me get to this next slide. Our findings are that performing as many repetitions as possible per set, that's volitional failure, with different loads over relatively short interventions. Oh, that's, that's that thing I couldn't see. Uh, if you guys could see, and I couldn't back when I was going over criteria, the average study was only something like eight weeks, give or take a couple of weeks, standard deviation of a couple of weeks. So when they keep talking about short interventions, I mean, when you're studying strength and hypertrophy and you're only giving a program design eight weeks, that to me, I, I guess there are some positive elements to that, but it really doesn't show you the long-term continuum of that. So I think you need to also look at studies for that. But for what it's worth, it seems that any training load can produce a similar magnitude of muscle hypertrophy for different participants, men and women, and muscle assessed upper and lower body. Uh, thus, relative short training interventions in untrained or novice subjects, sets to failure are one strategy for gaining muscle hypertrophy regardless of the load. Again, all of that applies to kind of relatively new people. With other strategies, albeit beyond the scope of this review, if performed with load that activates a high percentage of motor units, so that's higher load, hypertrophy is likely to occur. However, it is important to note that the practical application may still favor, and this is, this is a really important part of this study, it is important to note that the practical application may still favor the use of lower number of reps using high to moderate loads, so heavier weight, as the performance of low loads until volitional failure results in higher discomfort due to the number of repetitions, blah, blah, blah. So here's what's funny about this. This is why I mentioned that research will often confirm what the magnitude of the masses, the population already know. They are saying that though statistically, 85% of your work for hypertrophy, 85% of your results will come with just moderate load, nine to 15. You would never have to go below eight reps and you will get 85% of the hypertrophy. If you're in this game for a training impact, do you want just 85% of the results? That's where the higher load comes in and that's where you're stimulating the fast twitch muscle fiber. But to their point, and this is where you can even apply it over to why things like blood flow uh, restrictive training is, is in vogue. Sometimes you can't train with high loads. Sometimes you shouldn't sometimes, well, all the time you shouldn't do it, um, just synchronistically forever. You, you never just do high load, high load, high load. The best power lifters know how to cycle their, their volume and their frequency as well as the, the load that they use. But all of that to say that we kind of already knew this, but 
it's always nice to have some very significant data to back it up. And, and this is where I want to talk about some of the, the way we do science based on some of the questions you guys have. But as revealed by the meta regression, muscle hypertrophy derived from low, moderate, and high load resistance training regimens, uh, despite the modest and, and non-significant difference between them, seems to be affected by training status and the number of sessions completed, that is volume. Again, equating for the frequency versus volume versus load. So I, I promise I'm wrapping this up here. In contrast to muscle hypertrophy, muscle strength, as defined by one rep max testing, was found to be dependent on high loads. This finding is expected um, following, number one, the principle of specificity. You're doing the same motion under high load, so you're, you're training your central nervous system to recruit those motor units. Um, but then a combination of both neural and skeletal muscle adaptations derived from higher load resistance training, what I just said, I guess. Uh, moreover, the magnitude of, of change in low versus high load resistance, so now backing off, was consistent with what previously reported by Schoenfeld et al. Uh, and across all load comparisons for the highest loads. Regarding the difference between moderate and high load, the comparison approach statistical significance, um, you know, to a possible superior gain with high load training protocols. So again, coming back to moderate for a good training application, you don't need that super high load, but when you add the high load to that, cycling things in probably in a micro and meso undulating periodization model, then that's where you get all of your, your progress. So in summary, the present study explored the resistance. I'm, I'm not going to read this. I've, I've been repeating myself almost too much here. Um, but they did talk about a couple of limitations here, primarily, you know, the fact that they they were so specific in what they were looking for, that there are other ways you could probably analyze this in fine tune or create nuance for different training applications. But it was pretty down the center what they wanted to study between just those rep ranges, which would then correlate to how much load you could use in the best application for hypertrophy, the best application for strength. So as my little summary, as I bring you guys all back up here, stopping the screen share, I want to say that this is why very, very early in my career, going back to some of the work I read by Dr. Bill Kramer in the 80s and early 90s, uh, I have always looked at this as you train for hypertrophy or you train for strength. You can train for both of them in the same training block, but you're not necessarily going to get the best of both worlds in the tr same training session. So those of you who have worked with me on training, you know that my home base template mindset for training is that weekly undulating periodization where you're training for uh, hypertrophy one week and strength another. I certainly did not invent that. That was part of that early non-athlete, non-linear periodization work. But how you can apply that within that framework is still very important. For example, one of my clients said, hey, Joe, uh, I feel like I'm kind of tapped out on our current 5552 system, which is a rep range I, I use because so many Eastern European bloc countries develop that with such great success. 
and that's our strength work. And so she was basically telling me, we've been doing this for 12 weeks or 14 weeks or 16 weeks. And I'm finally reaching that point you said I would, where instead of gaining strength every two week cycle, I'm, I'm kind of hitting the ceiling. And so that indicates to me, it's a great time for a different training stimulus. And so A, I could just not do that kind of undulating work any longer. B, I'm certainly going to pull back from that kind of strength work. It's it's time to do the the you know two steps forward, one step back dance where we just we need to deload a little bit from that high load emphasis. But we also have these other variables to play with. Maybe I'm going to use different exercises so I'm getting a different functional anatomical basis for the work we do. Uh, and I'm going to change those rep ranges a little bit. I can decide we're going to do that as a training regression for one month or two months, or may, maybe make it a whole three or four month block that's really aggressive in a different direction. But frequency and duration that we looked at last week, load and rep ranges this week, I think those are kind of the two sides of the ledger that we look at if we're really serious about what we're doing for our training. So I see you guys just chomping at the bit to jump in here. Uh, I, I had to step away for a phone call for a few minutes. What did I miss? I got to, to nearly the very end. Oh, I, I'm not sure when you stepped away. So it, it just, in any general we thoughts on the whole topic, up. Jen? Pardon me? I said, any general thoughts on the whole topic of training load and hypertrophy versus strength? I think it actually makes sense. And I would say that um, I agree with the assessment that, yeah, this is sort of scientific confirmation of what most of us have innately found with experimentation in our bodies. I think it was interesting. What did what I was reminded of was the recent little summary by Mass Mass, um, just showing that most of us don't actually train to failure. Um, and I think that that is something that is really important for people coaching others um, to get them to understand. So you know, for instance, like it's great if you have a, a seventy year old who's trying to get healthy and maintain muscle mass for healthy longevity and aging. And it's wonderful that they'll start um, for the first six months, you know, with light rate, light weights and high reps to get used to the movements and condition their tendons and be safe and not get tendonitis and not get fractures and all those things. But then again, you know, they, they need to be informed um, about how they have to progress um, and I think there's, uh, there may be, they didn't really talk about it, but I think there is a little bit of a difference between what I call technical failure um, versus um, actual failure. So like certainly with powerlifting, you know, I don't really ever want to truly fail, fail on a deadlift except in competition. So I, I want it like technical failure to me would be grindy, maybe a little bit hitchy. Like if, if I do a, if, if I take a yank and if, if it ain't coming off the floor, it ain't coming off the floor, you know? So there's, there's all of that as well. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think maybe just a little more education um, that we can provide as individuals about what training to failure actually means, because it, it makes people, I think the notion of it, the, the term probably makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but it doesn't really need to be. And I think we can, we can use technical failure as, as one way. So like, you know, you're pressing, 
but you're kind of, you know, you get that little shimmy and stuff like that. That's to me, that's enough for failure, particularly with a heavier load uh, that I don't need to go to another one. I know the next one's not going up, you know. That is a really good point. I'm glad you brought it up on so many levels. Uh, first of all, for everybody watching and participating, Dr. Souders is a physician who also has almost a dozen world records in powerlifting. No, and... no, 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 no. That's that's too many. <laughs> Not that much. You, okay. But, uh, Three, you four, six. Me. All right. you, you compliment me to to to. to... Uh, that that's that's twice as many okay I, I i i thought i had reviewed your your bio um i i'm so glad that i'm i'm such a giant in your eyes <laughs> the, the though, myth, yeah the myth just grows in in my eyes absolutely you know and in your eyes better than like you yeah. know somebody else's i mean only you and like my parents would i accept that from no that that's awesome on on the levels that here, here's where I want to show each end of that continuum because at our advanced training fantasy camp when I was helping people, I mean, I was specifically on lower body helping people understand this concept. What is true intensity? What is true failure? We had experts like Jorge Rosado here going through the biomechanics of powerlifting and strength training. Austin Kiergaard did a phenomenal job. Taylor did a great job. I was just kind of the muscle, you know, tr trying to show people, um, you know, this is what you were just a muscle. This is, this is what you're capable of. Yeah, they were the brains of the operation. Um, and so as almost a little bit of a fun gimmick, because the, and not a gimmick, there's a real training effect, but the leg press is safe. Like you just said, deadlifts, you know, dangerous. You don't want to get hitchy or glitchy. And, you know, that's how you train every week. Squats, very dangerous. Leg press with a spotter or two, much, much safer. Uh and because you're with using the caveat that that you again you can still get butt wink on the on the leg press and sure. uh, you know so so people again have to be trained to to recognize that because that's you know then then leg press can become dangerous and and never wear a weightlifting belt on a leg press or you're gonna no um but we were there was almost a little bit of bravado happening with like how many reps people were getting with how many weights how much weight and and I you know, everybody wants to stop at a certain point because it hurts. You're, you're using so much glute, so much hamstring transition to quad. You are getting so much lactic acid discomfort. And, um, you know, I, I would tell people when they started to fail, they start reaching for the lever. I would say, you know, keep going, keep going. Don't stop. Don't lock out. Keep going. And with six plates on each side, that was kind of where we were stopping for the camp. Most people were getting 20 to 25 to 30 reps and where they wanted to stop, where they were reaching for that lever, I would always get five to 10 more reps out of them that they would have never even attempted on their own. And then I would say a minute or two later, okay, gun to your head, how many more reps could you have gotten? And they would always be like, yeah, I could have gotten a couple more. I could have got five more. And all of that to your point, Jen, that there is that kind of mechanical and metabolic disruption to true failure that we have, but on the other end of the continuum, is it safe? Is it necessary? Is it effective? Um, you know, there's all kinds of risk that you have to factor in because yes, even on something that I would consider safer than a deadlift or a squat, there's still risk to your point about a bench. If you think, okay, like, you know, I felt 95% there. I'm going to attempt another rep. 
and all of a sudden your glenohumeral joint is translating forward or you just you start to lose your tricep a little bit and you tear something you you tear a supraspinatus tendon i mean game over your career is never yeah. the same and that one extra rep attempt was stupid you know that's when you make a call that you can regret the rest of your life and so yes you know what failure really is volitional failure let's key in on the volitional part like where do you choose to draw that line that can become your baseline and then you can go above that on certain exercises at some times when you feel it's more appropriate yeah that's why i like the word technical because volitional we may chicken out too soon or we may we may over aggress it um but technical means that that was not a really good rep like that was not a solid rep that was a rep that was you know it's that rep it's it's velocity was down into the really really low ranges um or you know the 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 tracking of my body within the groove i i left the groove or i regressed in the groove and had to regather you know or anything like that or like my squat i just chickened out before i really hit depth and that that's enough hmm. because you know if if you've been, but it takes experience as part of the problem too. People need to understand, like you and I have been doing this for a long time. Like I know when my squat isn't deep enough. And I know when that's just because I just chickened out or, and I know when it's like, man, I'm not trying this in my home gym. Cause I don't have stops. Like I'm done. You know, if, if I, if I crash on the upper floor of my house with a squat rack that doesn't have stops and I'm just laying there on the floor in a pile of weights, that, that that's just a not happening thing, you know? Day. <laughs> well, and, and to your point, a, a good coach knows that as well. Like a good coach who is with you can say, yes, yeah, stop right now. Like you're not going any further. That was your last rep. We're not going higher. Um, my athlete that I mentioned, the 15 year old, you know, could he do more weight than we're doing right now? Of course, but we're in that training effect where the risk doesn't need to be high. Right. So uh, any other questions? Amanda, anybody? I don't have any questions, but I will say, Jennifer, like, I wish I would see you more often on these calls because, damn, every time you come on, you're just, it's like she's reading my mind, like, holy shit, that's exactly what I was, I was thinking, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, she just hit the nail on the head. I um, personally... You know, I feel I feel like uh, afraid to to get to that failure point, especially because I love to work out at home. Um, I hate going to the base gym; it's always crowded. I can't do my supersets, and so when I'm at home, I'm like, "Well, if I fail, like y'all are gonna find me laid out in my gym <laughs> at home." You know, um, now I don't have a leg press or anything like that, but there was like a couple days ago, I felt I was doing a barbell uh, chest press and I, I felt good on the top. And I was like, I think I can do one more. Nope. And I was like, oh shit, how am I going to get out of this? <laughs> you know, like, thankfully I was able to tip the bar and get out of it. But um, yeah, it's, it can be scary. You can really, you know, you kind of just have to know your limitations. Well, that's and, and so remember, that that's where failure with a really heavy weight is riskier because you're probably going to resist it and that's going to create contractile force that can tear things more easily. 
when you're failing with a more moderate weight, um, you can probably drop it, get out of it a little easier to, to that example of bench press. When we were here a couple of weeks ago with Austin and Jorge, um, Austin was running a barbell bench press station. And at one point I asked him, I'm like, Hey, do you want some collars on that? And he said, no. And I thought, you know, my safety mind went to, okay, I really hope all of our attendees here can balance the weight appropriately. But he said, A, you do need to learn that balance, but B, on a barbell, you really want to be able to dump the weight if you need to, you know, if you get stuck, you know, in our application yeah. with tons of people around here that you don't need that, but you really do need to think of those kind of things. Yeah. And that's another reason of like for home training. I really do like I, I don't I don't squat less than six to eight reps because I know that if six is a little funky, you know, I can detect the difference between six to, to 10 reps as they're going down. But if you if you're if you're working between like three and four, you know, that the, the, the margin for detecting that failure becomes really high and uh, and it's. I mean, it, it, it can be really difficult. A deadlift at home, sure, you know, but um, but not something like a squat without safety stops at home. Um, I just will not do those except in hypertrophy range then, which is fine because that's an impetus for me to do a different kind of training, uh, which does then yield benefits anyway. So I'll summarize like this, guys, uh, especially because we, we may not go on. The, these three consecutive weeks on training variables. Uh, I think they really do confirm the trend in current exercise science research that training to failure doesn't matter quite as much training with higher load. You're, you're getting 85 to 90 some percent of the results by not having to train to failure by not training with dangerous heavy loads. If you're a strength athlete, then yes, add that in. And if you really want the best hypertrophy, you have to cycle in some higher load works some of the time. Uh, again, not all the time. And then as Dr. Souders said, you know, even that heavy work doesn't have to be, uh, you know, beyond technical failure. It, it just doesn't have to. It, it, it's really interesting uh, and I think heartening that this kind of research is is really fortifying itself with more and more data because if people concede it if they if they really listen uh then you will you're gonna have a lot less injuries you're gonna have better longevity and i think people are going to realize that over time with patience and consistency you're getting every bit of results without as many injuries so all right, guys, thank you for being here. Hope hope uh, this was worthwhile. Again, if you guys did not see the first two on training variables, I think they would make this one uh, a lot more enjoyable. But we'll see you next week and probably turning back to something nutritional. You guys have a great rest of your Friday and weekend.